Chapter 9 With this turn of events, any further argument in Cheryl's defense had to be well thought out. Stella sat upright amid the costly, well-polished treasures, wishing that the fancy clocks would strike eleven o'clock and give her a moment to think. She stared at Mrs. McAndrew and judged that the ear-flap hair and dewlap mouth, or maybe it was her bright brown eyes, gave the woman not only an air of guard-duggery, but also of intelligent intransigence. So, not just well thought out, any argument in Cheryl's defense had better be a humdinger. For example, posit that Cheryl needed money. This raised a question of logic. If she still needed money, then would it follow that she hadn't stolen any? No. People who had money wanted more of it. Look at billionaires, all of whom wanted more money. Even more feverishly, it seemed, than the poor. She was sorry to see her own logic fail, but returned to the center of the argument. Cheryl was honest. Now, Stella knew what every school teacher knows. A true heart shines. But how, in the face of so much missing money, was she to convince Mrs. McAndrew of that? Stella decided that, heading into fierce winds in an argument, sometimes you needed not force, but a different tact. This honest woman, Stella ignored the guttural noise Mrs. McAndrew emitted, she repeated, the honest woman is a mother. Cheryl is the support of her children. With your accusations, you're endangering them and their home. Cheryl's children are her own responsibility. This is mine. Mrs. McAndrew held out her arms to encompass her trove of furniture, paintings, glass, and clockwork. Dragonish paranoia. Nobody says they're not yours, Stella began. Mrs. McAndrew interrupted. No, you're not listening, Stella. I mean that these are my responsibility. I safeguard these possessions for my family. Stella said, you only have a granddaughter. Bellamy will carry on after me. Mrs. McAndrew smoothed the silk coverlet with her both palms. My aunt did so before me, and her father before her, and his father. The chain of responsibility is unbroken. Would you have me break it? No. Stella valued tradition. Even though the idea of all these generations of fire-breathing McAndrews was fairly daunting. Still, these treasures are only things, objects, no matter how lovely. I'm talking about people, she said calmly. So am I, Mrs. McAndrew answered, just as evenly. These beautiful things are the legacy of masters, the vision of artists' eye. With help, they'll endure the centuries, but a painting can't protect itself against ill-treatment, 
nor can a table flee the teeth of a family dog. Precious objects can't armor themselves against theft either. That is up to me. I was raised to it. To know my duty to Chippendale, to Stubbs, she gestured toward a pair of chairs near the window and a small portrait in oils of a gentleman on horseback. And I owe it to those who had the foresight to collect and treasure them, the MacAndrew family. If I let a thief steal from me, why not open the doors to the nation's great museums and let burglars walk away with it all? Stella had managed so far to keep her mouth shut. Now she rose to her feet. Alice McAndrew, what a lot of nonsense. These are expensive chairs and paintings. Don't make it sound as if this room holds the last remaining works of Leonardo da Vinci. Nobody gives a darn about your Chippendale chairs except you and your granddaughter, and she'll probably sell the lot when you're gone, and there won't be a thing you can do about it. Well, I guess you could haunt her, Stella thought, feeling a little breathless. However, when she took in the other woman's pallor, she wondered whether she might possibly have gone a little too far. Mrs. McAndrew looked about two steps from the abyss. I'm sorry, Stella said. I lost my temper. The dragon smiled faintly. Your apology is not accepted. Stella leaned forward. Be angry with me, Alice, but not with Cheryl. She's the one who polished all this, isn't she? She's the one who dusted and moved things about and wound the clocks. At this moment, a cuckoo went off. Stella glared at the relic of old Switzerland. However, it had awakened in her the realization that her argument was sliding dangerously off target. Before she could bro broach the question of the timing of the theft, Mrs. McAndrew said, Well, Cheryl didn't clean and polish out of the goodness of her heart. I paid her. Extra. Stella started. What do you mean you paid her? Fairmont Manor pays her. Now you see, the dragon folded her claws across her lap. I am a fair woman. I gave her one of those, and she pointed to the album. A solid thousand dollars. She took it, mind you, with hardly a thank you. And then, I suppose she must have seen where the money was kept, between the pages. Stella stared. Alice, there are only two possibilities here. One, that you believe, mistakenly, that you are telling the truth, and two, you are lying through your teeth. No care worker in the world would be allowed to accept money like that. And she stood up. Believe what you like, Mrs. McAndrew said. I paid for her service. I'm no slave driver. And Cheryl worked hard. She took the money for it. Then she stole the rest. Please leave. With pleasure. Stella said bitterly. As she ex exited the dragon's lair, she tried to slam it behind her, but the pneumatic door inhibitor wouldn't allow it. As it cushioned itself shut, one of the clocks went off again. 
Stella wandered down the corridor in a stew, wondering just what Mrs. Alice McAndrew, with all that money, was doing in this place anyway. Why wasn't she in Montague House with its chandeliers and wainscoting? Now there was a mystery. But by the time Stella had passed through Corridor Park, where today Thelma Hugh sat alone, she had avoided Thelma's thrusting cane and deducted, deduced the solution to the mystery of what a very rich woman was doing at Fairmount. The answer was right there in the coin album. Alice McAndrew had come to Fairmount Manor because she had money. She thought she could buy herself excellence in service. As she drifted into the foyer and up to the locked front door, she added to herself, so that she could be the richest of us all. But Stella could forgive Alice McAndrew that. Everybody needs to feel as special as she could manage. Crossing the foyer, Stella stopped at the window next to the glass door. She was not allowed to go any further. Stella was not allowed outside by herself. But from here, she could look out under the awning and the visitor's drop-off area. Leading up to the front door, the driveway curved up from the street. It had been edged with daffodils, and the way things were going, she was glad to have something cheery and yellow to look at. Even these late daffodils were better than nothing, although they wouldn't last much longer. Their ragged petals and trumpets bobbed in the damp-looking gray spring wind. Some of the daffodil stalks Stella saw with a shock had been clipped back. Clipped back? What kind of a gardener committed a crime like that? Not another blossom would they see from these bulbs next year. The world really was not the place it once was. Daffodils were cut back. Honest care workers were accused of crimes they would never in a million years commit. As she fumed, a car turned into the drive, running over one of the daffodils and leaving it crooked and broken on the blacktop. As the SUV pulled up, she eyed its shining, expensive lines. Somebody's relatives were well-to-do. That was certain, although it was not a McAndrew. The dragon's granddaughter, Bellamy, was a struggling student, no matter what her inheritance would someday be. But this car! Nothing that big and shiny came cheap. It was German, she guessed. Further, she predicted that the driver would prove to be a young lawyer or perhaps a dentist. But somebody in his twenties or thirties... Middle-aged men always seemed to own classic cars or convertibles, didn't they? She was pleased with her detective work when she saw the handsome, youngish man climb out of the driver's seat and open the back door of the car. He was a very attractive fellow, the sort who would have turned her head back when, if she had passed him on the street. What she had expected to see next, she didn't know, 
but she wasn't ready for Cheryl to get out of the back seat of this expensive vehicle. Cheryl, who until recently had driven a battered old compact into the ground, and after that arrived by bus. Now, she leaned inside the shiny German tank of a car, embraced her two children, Stella could just make them out, and then her handsome husband. He hopped back into the car. Cheryl adjusted her handbag on her shoulder and walked towards the front door. Chapter 10 To Stella, watching the care workers approach along the laurel-planted walkway toward Fairmount Manor's glass foyer door, Cheryl appeared to droop to one side. She seemed dragged down as much by the weight of her handbag as by fatigue or distress. What she would do when Cheryl reached her, Stella couldn't say. For how might she ask for an explanation for this sudden show of wealth, the acquisition of an expensive car? Of course, Stella could invoke the elderly person's right to extreme nosiness, but the idea repelled her. Furthermore, if she did ask where the money to buy that shiny new car had come from, she dreaded hearing Cheryl's answer. For Cheryl was honest, and Cheryl would have to lie. So before the care worker could open the door, Stella turned and walked away. As she reached the corner that would take her past the office, or possibly to the dining room, it was always so hard to know which corridor led where. Reliza and Ollie passed her, one coming from the left and one from the right. They greeted Stella briefly and headed straight for Cheryl as the foyer door shut behind her. Stella stopped. She turned. She watched as Cheryl looked from Reliza to Ollie. A moment of silence ensued and then the handbag slipped off her shoulder and slumped on the floor at Cheryl's feet. In a thin voice, Cheryl said, I can't tell my family about Mrs. McAndrew's accusations. My husband, Riley's only just come back to us. I must not upset the boat, but to have to defend myself alone. Reliza put her arms around the taller woman. Especially when the director believes they're true and that you stole, she agreed. But Dr. Terry has told me he disagrees, and I do not believe you stole anything, Cheryl. Neither does Ollie. Do you, Ollie? Ollie, his broad face relaxed, was gazing out at the driveway where the big new car had just dropped Cheryl. After a short pause, he said, Of course not. Say, that's some car you've got. Cheryl rubbed at her eyes. My husband Riley got us a new low-interest credit card to ease the pressure. He worked it out all on paper. He said it'll save us money to lease a new car. As she listened nearby, shame heated Stella's cheeks. She ought to have known better. She should have trusted her intuition. Cheryl was not dishonest. She merely had a spendthrift 
husband and an unclear grasp of personal finances. Thank God. Stella took a step closer to the little triangle of care workers as Cheryl went on. Riley says it's cheaper. It's sure nice for the kids. Unexpectedly, Stella found herself meeting Cheryl's gaze. Taking a step forward, Stella clasped her hands together. She said, Cheryl, I found that coin for Mrs. McAndrew, the Bonnie Prince Charlie coin. Oh, Mrs. Ryman, Cheryl's face lit with relief. She smiled her beautiful smile. Just for that one moment, the world was a brighter place. Stella wished she did not have to extinguish Cheryl's smile with what must be said next, the news about the missing 18,000. But maybe she didn't have to. Perhaps if she saved the bad news for later, Cheryl would benefit from a little break from stress and tears. But holding such knowledge secret was a kind of a lie. And if Cheryl was to brace herself to meet further charges, Stella could not leave the news unbroken. She said, There's going to be a second, worse accusation, Cheryl, and you must prepare yourself against the new lie that will be told. Stella let out a, or Reliza let out a small, wordless cry. Ollie turned away from the window and folded his strong arms across his chest. What now? he asked. Are they saying Cheryl held up a liquor store, robbed the National Mint? Nobody laughed. Reliza came as close as she ever could to hissing. What, Mrs. Ryman? What have you learned? Cheryl stood still. Her hands were clasped tightly together. Her handbag still lay on its side at her feet. Stella said, Mrs. McAndrew believes that she gave you a thousand dollar gratuity and you accepted it. She decided not to mention the thousands of other dollars that were missing. Yet. Cheryl stared. Reliza and Ollie exchanged looks. Reliza's first language was not English, and her agitation, in her agitation, she stumbled over her words. A thousand dollar tip? That old woman is gaga, said Ollie's uh, local rococo. Cheryl was uh, shaking her head and looked as if she was trying to smile, of all things. But I did, she said. In the moment of silence that followed, Stella stood frozen with disbelief. Apparently unaware of her co-worker's stares, Cheryl fumbled in her pockets, which were on the bulgy side. At last, she pulled out a tissue and blew her nose. Sure I took it, she said. Even with Mrs. McAndrew, I have to be polite. But we're not allowed, Reliza burst out. Taking money from a resident can result in uneven care. Mrs. Warren was very firm about that when she hired me. You could be fired for that. Her face had gone ashy. Only if they find out, Molly interjected. 
but Cheryl was waving her hands in a gesture of denial. I, I took it, but only because I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Whatever she thought she was giving me, it's worthless. I've still got that so-called money she gave me. So-called money? Stella struggled to keep up with what Cheryl was saying. Again, Cheryl delved into her pockets. She said, it's in here somewhere. I've got it. She bent down and fumbled in her bag. When I work at the mall every December to make extra Christmas money for the kids' presents, there's a list of currency that we're not allowed to accept. This one's on it. $1,000 bills have been out of circulation for ages, decades. It's out of date. You can't spend it. It's just paper. Like, just like Monopoly money. It's worthless. Worthless. Stella breathed the word. Relief ran through her like a cold drink of water and sunshine. I should have realized. She wondered suddenly about Mrs. McAndrew and her treasures. Was that really a stubs hanging on the wall? What if the chairs were Chippendale reproductions, faithfully polished but without any true value? And what if the Bonnie Prince Charlie coin was a greater pretender than even the original? Thank God, Eliza whispered. You can't be fired for taking a bit of paper. Cheryl began to weep, but it was a completely sort of crying than it had been the day before in Stella's room. Stella felt rather like crying herself, and Eliza, she judged, was not far behind. Ollie raised one eyebrow. He cleared his throat. Sorry, girls. With his look, he included Stella among the girls. Money is money, even if it's out of circulation. It's worth what it says. You can't spend it at a store, but take it to the bank, and a thousand is what they have to give you. A thousand smackaroos. Then I guess they'd shred the old bill or put it in a museum or something. Cheryl had stopped crying. She had turned white and was holding on to Reliza who appeared shaken to her center. Stella looked around her, saw the visitor's chair near the front door, and sat herself down in it. I don't know what to do, Cheryl said. She blinked. Yes, I do. I have to give it back. No, Reliza cried. Don't, Ollie barked. He looked as serious as Stella had ever seen him. It'll only get you deeper into trouble. Eliza nodded. She took Cheryl's hand in hers. You'll certainly be fired, and maybe even arrested for taking it. The care workers appeared to have forgotten all about Stella sitting on the visitor's chair nearby. It was as if she had disappeared or become a ghostly presence. She could listen without having to speak, and see without being seen. It was a great relief to step away from all this tension and become invisible. Ollie laughed without humor. Arrested, no. Fired, yes. But I can't prove it if they can't prove you took the thousand. You know what you have to do. Get rid of it. Still, digging through her pockets for the money, Cheryl shook her head. 
Stella wanted to say, Listen to them, Cheryl. But she did not. Leaving the situation to the young folk, she remained in her chair, invisible. A few years back, Ollie was saying, at another home, this old fellow died and his brother gave me his car, a 98 Corolla. I just made up a story that it was my uncle's and drove it for a year until the insurance ran out. No skin off anybody's nose. It wasn't a problem. But Cheryl appeared to have stopped listening. Could I have dropped that darn money? I couldn't, could I? She picked up her handbag and was searching inside it as she walked away. Ollie and Beliza followed in her wake. Left alone in sudden silence, Stella leaned back in the visitor's chair. She wished she didn't know what Cheryl would do, but of course she did. The woman couldn't behave any way but honestly, and nobody could stop her. Not Ollie, not Beliza, and certainly not Stella. A stripe of sunlight had crept through the glass front door to lie across her slip-on shoes like a small, warm cat. She sat throughout a series of steady heartbeats within her own breast, enjoying the moment outside time, a moment of comfort where nothing at all was required of her. Then, with a sigh, she got to her feet and followed the three care workers. She reached Daffodil Corridor without losing her way for once, in time to see that Cheryl, still wearing her coat, was just entering the staff room. Reliza and Ollie had broken away for other duties. Stella waited outside the staff room door, although she supposed loitering was the precise word for what she was doing. Loitering with intent. She peeked through the gap between the door and its frame to see Cheryl weeping and sifting through her handbag again. As with so many things, it came down to luck. Would Cheryl find the money in her untidy bag and pockets right away? That would spoil Stella's plan entirely. Or would Cheryl blow her nose and wash her face before dumping everything out on the table. Stella heard the washroom door close. Chapter 11 As it was just an hour before lunchtime, the staff room was unlikely to be occupied. Nevertheless, Stella lifted her feet in her slip-on shoes a little higher than usual so as to not to make a sound. Certain that the money was not in Cheryl's handbag, she had seen its contents spilled out on the floor yesterday, Stella turned her attention to the coat rack by the windows opposite the door, or, more precisely, to Cheryl's blue coat hanging askew upon the hook nearest the washroom. A few moments earlier, Cheryl hadn't been able to find the accursed thousand-dollar bill in this same coat, but then she had been crying. Stella, her mind cool and smooth as lemon custard, searched Cheryl's coat pockets. She fished out several damp tissues, even more shopping receipts, and the bit of 
pink paper that was worth, as Ollie had put it, a thousand smackaroos. With the thousand dollar bill wrapped in her tightly closed fist, Stella hurried out past the sink, which made her feel quite thirsty. There was no time, however, to stop to take a drink, not even a dash of tap water. She longed more than anything for a nice cup of tea, but the important thing was to remain unseen as she made her escape. But before she had taken two steps outside the staff room, she heard a murmur of voices. Reliza and Ollie were approaching. Stella's room 34 was just an unlucky few yards too far distant to reach before they saw her. The money still in her fist, Stella ducked out of the corridor into the larger storage room just across from the staff room. Back to the wall and quite giddy with secrecy, she listened to the conversation going on just across the corridor from her hiding spot. I can't find it. That thousand dollar bill is missing, Cheryl was saying. Reliza answered, That is the universe telling you not to get into any more trouble. I can't take the accusations much longer, Cheryl said. I, I won't. On the opposite side of the corridor, behind the door, scowling at the table beneath the storage room window, Stella sent an urgent mental telegram. Cheryl, sit tight and let me save your bacon. Out in the corridor, she heard Ollie say, Be cool, Cheryl. This will all blow over. Mrs. Mack's not the first person to lose something in a care home. As she listened inside the storage room, Stella held tightly to the money and gazed at the empty boxes stacked beside and on top of the wooden table. This table was the sort that high schools provided for art classrooms. If it had been a folding table, the articulated legs would have made it useless to her. But it had four straight legs at the corners and a green plastic tablecloth draped awkwardly across it. With a start, she noticed that the hallway had grown silent. Cheryl, Reliza, and Ollie must have headed off on their various duties. Her back still pressed against the wall of the storage room. Stella was alone in this part of the corridor. It was then, with the money hot in her pocket, that the full import of what she had done crept up upon her like a thief. It snatched away her equilibrium and then her concentration and then it left her staring blankly at the storage room table with its concealing green cloth.